We're in this, this celebrating this season of resurrection, and it's a season that's intended to foster the hope of victory and to nudge us to hope for change in our lives, precisely because Jesus has risen out of all of that made us dark and all that brought our lives into the land of the suck. Right, that somehow God has broken that and we can emerge with a brighter life. The Old Testament prophet told one of the kings, and I love this, uh, he said, the, the Lord has much more for you than this. He looked right at him and said, listen, the Lord has much more for you than this, than what's going on. What if we stepped back in this season and took a more panoramic view of our lives and dared to think that, the Lord has much more for me than this. That's what resurrection imagery is about. It's about calling us to reassess and to up our expectations and to begin to ask God, how can I be open to you and all that you have won through the cross and through the resurrection to spill more into my life? Now we know that not all of it will happen. Not everything he imagines for us will happen. We're in that season, you know, where, where the kingdom has come, but not yet, it's not fully come. But there's a tension there. And, and one of the aspects of the call in this particular season is to ask the question, what more does God have for me? What, what could happen if I began to lean into my faith? We have to decide if we think there's something more to the idea that he's risen than that he gives us victory. In fact, one of the, one of the opening statements in, in a number of the breviaries, those are prayer books like the Book of Common Prayer during this season, is the opening statement, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ our Lord. So the question is, is that, are those just religious words? Is there anything to that? Is there any way in which victory could spill into your life and into my life that maybe we're not currently walking into? Working the implications of the resurrection into our walkabout life is I think what the goal of this season is. It's not necessarily a small challenge. Uh, I think the greatest part of the challenge, at least for me and my own soul, is this notion that the risen Christ is with us and that he wants to express his resurrection through us now as his people. Um, we were talking last week about the resurrected Jesus being with us. Uh, I told you that in the post-resurrection stories that we'll be reading as we read today and, and later in the month or later in the series, of Easter, we find the Gospels were all about Jesus appearing and then disappearing unexpectedly. And even in this text today, it says that after he broke the bread and they recognized him, it says he disappeared. <laughs> I love believing stuff like that. <laughs> it's so crazy, right? He just breaks bread and bing, he disappears. But the point is, is that what he's trying, I think what he's, what seems to be happening in these narratives and these pericopes, these, these little uh, pieces or vignettes of the stories of Jesus after the resurrection is he's trying to show them, listen, I'm with you all the time, whether you see me or whether you don't. And I'm with you all the time, whether you feel me feel my presence or whether you don't. Lo, I am with you 
always. After even when, when he makes that first, that time, first time he makes that promise at the end of Matthew, he says, lo, I'm with you always. And then he ascends and he's gone. Right? He disappears again. And I can't help but think that they had to think inside themselves, ah, you know, he looks like he took off, but really he's still here. <laughs> There's something about the idea that the resurrected Christ is always just with us. We buy into it so deeply that we practice his presence that we attempt to seek him because we believe that he's actually with us. God has always expressed interest in hanging within the creation. All the way back to the first narrative, Genesis. Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and what's going on? The spirit of God's hanging, hovering over the waters. The idea of hovering in the Hebrew means this idea of anticipation of what's going to happen. He's there. And then in Genesis 3, in the narrative where the, where the human beings are in the garden, in this narrative, it says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What's he doing? He's moving toward those he created. And they hid themselves from the Lord among the trees, but the Lord called out to them, where are you? There's always this, this idea of God hanging, God reaching out, God wanting to interchange, inter, interact with creation. In John 20, it says, when they asked a woman, this is in the resurrection, uh, had happened, and they asked her, woman, where are, why are you crying? And she said, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. This is the theme. He's there, but we don't always recognize him. He's with us, but we don't always realize it. And so she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is, it, who is it you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. So even though Jesus is speaking to her, she doesn't recognize him. Is it possible that he speaks to us in our everyday in circumstances, in things, in interactions, and we just don't recognize him? And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. In other words, he loved to be with her. And just a few verses later, it says, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together within the doors, or with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. He came, doors are locked, but somehow he shows up in there. Peace be with you. And this happens a few times, this idea. And then we have our gospel today. As they walked, this is out of Luke 24, 15. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. God loves to hang with his people, even if they don't know it's him. That's the claim. What should we do with that is the question. I mean, we, we wrestle with this claim during the Easter season. Can we believe it? I mean, God can handle it if you can't. I mean, he's just in on this hang with you, whether you get it or not. So don't think he's mad at you. But he is the claim. He is with us. And it really would just be a shame to, and almost rude 
to not acknowledge him. Right? If you're sitting in a conversation and somebody comes up to you and smiles and you completely ignore them, you're just rude. I think most of us are just rude. And it's not an issue of faith, it's an issue of just not being nice. And here we are in the South. I read that Augustine quote to you last week, and I just so love this, but it shows this idea. Augustine wrote, late, he's talking to God, it's a whole, this whole prayer, this confessions is the book, it's a whole, the whole book is a prayer. And he says, late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within, and I was in the external world, and I saw you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. In other words, I was just into stuff. But you were with me. You were with me. And I was not with you. This is, this is the pressing question. Are you with him? Because the claim is, he is with you. The three things I want to point out from our text this morning. One is how the risen Christ loves to move around undetected in our lives. We've already sort of stated that. The second is how the scriptures we see in this story are so central to his work, Christ's work in our lives. And then number three, the special grace that helps us see him and catch him in our lives in a more effective way. So first, how the risen Christ loves to move around undetected. Notice in our gospel text that after the resurrection, the evening of the resurrection, Jesus is walking and he is hiding in plain sight. We already read it to you. They were kept from recognizing him. And I remember years ago, it was in the 80s, I'm reading this text just as a matter of, you know, because I'm reading through the Bible, and just as a matter of just reading, I'm not trying to study, I'm not trying to get any knowledge, I'm just reading because I'm trying to fulfill my obligation follow me. So it's not like I was really into it. Right? So I'm just reading casually. And I read that and, and, and they were kept from recognizing him. And I kid you not, something in my heart, I think it was the Holy Spirit said, or I heard in something, not audibly, but something in me, I heard these words. I do that to you all the time. I was shocked. Honestly, because I th- in my mind, see, I was, I thought it was the devil. Because I was brought up in a tradition, and so were some of you. I was brought up in a tradition that said God always wanted to be out in the open. And, and whether it was through emotional outburst, where you just felt God to a point where you just, you know, somehow demonstrated it in expression, or somehow there were miracles, or somehow there was power, that God was always wanting to do that all the time. And if those things were not happening, it was because of a lack of faith on the part of the people of God. That was my tradition. So when I heard that in my heart, I always do that to you. I keep you from recognizing me. It sounded like the devil to me. But then it put the question in my mind, is it possible that God is hiding in my life? That much of the energy I was doing in prayer, much of the energy I was doing in reading scripture, mostly was trying to build up, you know, build up the energy for power. And that I wanted to get to that power that I thought that was, that was what that was for. But this suggests 
that that's not what that's for. That our openness to God, our prayer, our seeking him, our reading texts is more to find the God who hides, who's already in my life, in my friendship, in my relationship with the people I'm closest to, like my spouse, in the work that I do, in the stuff that I have, that somehow it's all gift. And I began to be haunted by that idea. What if the risen Christ is in my everyday life and I'm just not recognizing him? Paul makes the statement in 1 Corinthians. He says, we see through a glass darkly or dimly. I don't think this is any truer than in the area of God's pervasive presence. It seems dark to us. Uh, somehow we sit in darkness about it. I, 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 it's hard for us to believe it. So counterintuitive. I think we think if it were true, we'd certainly know it. I mean, we'd feel it if God were really with me. If I'd sense it somehow, see clear evidence of it, right? I mean, how can omnipotence hide? It's counterintuitive. If he's really in my life, he can't, I mean, he, we, you know, how do you, how do you walk into a, uh, you know, a, a, a huge um, uh, reactor, you know, <laughs> that's running a city or a nuclear reactor and not notice it, right? Anything that's powerful, you would notice. I mean, if I told you I had a car in my pocket, it's you, exactly what you do. You know, yeah, right. But what if I reached in my pocket and went, and it was a, like a Lincoln SUV, I mean, just, just like this. I got a car. You laugh, and all of a sudden I go, and there's a freaking car right here. What would you do? You go, it's a miracle. Because you can't fit big and small. What if, what if the greatest miracle that God does every day in our life is the fact that he's with us and we don't feel him? How is that even possible? Because God does it. What if he's just like really good at hiding? And what if that's the very reason why the principal thing he calls people of faith to do is seek him? What if he's just always playing? Hide and seek. 1 Corinthians 6 says, do you not know that your body is an actual temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Your prayers don't get you closer to God. Coming to church doesn't get you closer to God. God can't get any closer to you. He'd come out the other side. <laughs> he is in you. He is with you. All that stuff do, does, the prayer, the church, the study, whatever you do is to help you see the one who's already there. The risen Christ is in us vis-a-vis -vis the Holy Spirit. There is nothing you can do to change that. All we need to do is pray for eyes to see it. For the light to chase away the darkness. This is such a great prayer even for people outside of faith because the, 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 the gospel is clear. The Spirit is working everywhere, even in every person, no matter what faith they're in, no matter what 
part of the world they're in, they may not understand Christ. The Spirit ultimately brings people to Christ. But we can always be praying, God, help people see that you're working around them and in them somehow. That should be our prayer. Now, here, I, I'm not suggesting this is easy, but I, here's a couple things I think can help us, at least is what I do, to try to seek him, to see him, is one, I recognize his penchant to hide. I buy into the fact that God loves to tuck away himself into my life, not being caught. Number two, believing that, I find a place, whether it's, a lot of times it's in my where I sit in the morning with my coffee, uh, but, but whether it's in a room or in a car or in a closet or in the back or wherever you are that can be quiet, get some quiet. Some people call this meditation. Get some quiet and then just be fully present. Be honest about where you are. Some, you know, whether you're full of faith, whether you're full of doubt, just be in that moment and be honest. There's sometimes, I kid you not, I'm in sitting there, I'm thinking, God, I don't know if I can even believe in you today. It's such crazy stuff to believe. And somehow when I just say that, it's just like I feel, you know, like I'm chumming up to him somehow, to God somehow. Uh, uh, this can be a challenge. This alone time can be a challenge for me because there's a lot of stuff that I come into there that I realize I'm unresolved about. It can be a situation or a conversation that was bothering me from yesterday that's lingering. And so I'm sitting there trying to be quiet and bring myself fully and that stuff starts echoing and I go, ooh, I need to process that. Or, or some unresolved guilt that I may have had because of something I said or something I did, and I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, that starts infringing on that moment. I go, okay, let's deal with this. So you have to bring yourself present and start wrestling through this stuff. Or sometimes I, it'll be something as stupid as I watched this show last night, and I didn't like the way it ended. So I'm sitting there in that moment thinking, well, you could have ended this way. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense because that... <laughs> and I'm sitting there trying to be in present with God working out the details of something from Hollywood, <laughs> right? But once I'm present, once I f get through a little bit of that fog and get into a place of quiet, I open up to the Lord who I'm attempting to believe is present. And I pretend he's present. You know, think of what I just said. I every one of us have a portion, all of us have the p capacity to pretend right? Listen, you did that when you were little kids. Pretend you were a princess, pretend you were a thing, and some of you are still pretending. <laughs> Most of us, it's imagination. Most of us only use it for evil. We can imagine the worst. We can, we can imagine the worst happening, right? But what if you used your imagination, that part of you that imagines, and imagine that he's present right there with you, God Almighty, and then in that moment when I imagine that, when I pretend that, I start trying to, I don't know how to explain it, I start trying to draw him up into my thinking. You know, <laughs> like if you get a good milkshake and you gotta really work on it, right? I start trying to draw him up into my consciousness, somehow draw him up. And, and the imagery I like to use sometimes is like a plant, like I imagine a plant that's in the earth draws nourishment and draws water out of the ground.
right? That kind of idea. We know that Jesus used this kind of imagery in John 15. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. This imagery of drawing and being able to have fruit because you're drawing from the vine, this kind of idea. Here's the promise if you get into spaces like this. Hosea 6. Let us acknowledge the Lord. In other words, you don't have to. He can be right with you and you just never answer the door, you rude person. Let us press on to acknowledge him. It takes some persistence. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to you like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. See, if you dare to do this, even on pretend mode, and you stick to it, he will come. If you're in a hurry, you'll be disappointed. This may take a while. It might be a daily effort for months. If you hate boring, you will not last. Because the bad news is that boredom is one of the essentials for spirituality. Think watching paint dry. This, this is what you do. Whether you're reading your Bible or whether you're praying, I just, just think watching paint dry. Lower your expectations. I'll never forget when I first started reading the Bible as a matter of discipline. I used to just read the Bible, the good stuff, you know. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, or I can do all things through Christ. All the good ones. But there's so much in the Bible that's so boring. He begot, 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 begot. And this story, and that. And it's just like, oh my gosh. Right? And I remember when I committed to reading the Bible, somewhere in that midst, it was back in the 80s, when the one-year Bible, anybody remember those? The one-year Bible, you read that one-year. And I read that thing, and I read it through consistently year after year. And one of the things that hit me, and I've told this story before, I only have one life, so you hear all my stories. But anyway, uh, uh, I can make some up. I know preachers that do that. But anyway, I'm reading, and, and it was one of those moments that I felt an inspired thought, I think, from the Holy Spirit that was this. Just read it and keep reading it. And every once in a while, I'll peek at you through the pages. And then I, the sense came to me, this thought came to me. And if you keep doing it over time, not only will I be peeking through the pages, I'll be peeking through your life to the world just by sticking to reading it. So the image in my mind when I read the Bible is that because I have grandkids, had kids, and you all had the jack-in-the-box, you know, bump. We're all waiting for the bump, right? We're waiting for that, but most of it's see, that's it. Spirituality is about that. You don't get many pop the weasel things. My kids used to tell me when they were, you know, because all kids tell their parents they're bored. So they'd sit by me as though it was my responsibility to fix their plight. I'm bored, Dad. And I would always say, you can ask them. They're all adults now. They know this. They'll tell you. I used to say, well, that's wonderful, being bored. That's a gift. I mean, you'll never be very spiritual unless you have a high tolerance for boredom. So welcome. 
This is bad news for most Americans. For most of us, there's no such thing as good and evil anymore. There's no good and evil. There's only fun and boring. And we're asking people, new generations that come up, man, I feel sorry for having to ask this to our youngest generation of believers. But if you want to be a believer, you got to welcome boredom. Doesn't happen any other way. But if you dare... If you dare to go on the hunt for the risen Christ, to seek him, be all in, refusing to retreat, he will come. <laughs> Jeremiah 29 says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In other words, you're all in. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, which means light will come. You will catch him. All right, I've labored that. Second thing I want to show you from this text. That the scriptures have, oh, how much time? Have I been talking really long? I have, haven't I? How long have I, am I, can I finish this quick? Am I okay? All right. I'm okay. <laughs> the second thing, and I'll do it quicker, that I want to point out to you from this gospel text is how the scriptures have always been central to the risen Christ's work in our lives. You've got to fall in love by hearing the texts. You've got to be open to it. Somehow they're like magic somethings. They, they contain something more than just words. In Luke 24, it says, he said to them, this is our text, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about himself. And then afterwards, when they sit and he breaks the bread, they said, were not our hearts burning within us while he explained the scriptures to us? There's something about the scriptures that God chooses to use where he cuts into our lives. And he does stuff in us. The role of sacred text has always been central to the church's life. The language, the imagery, the big ideas that the church has carried historically have always been rooted in the writings that the church considers the, the word of God, which we call the Bible. To be sure, the ancient Christians did not look at these texts the way a lot of moderns look at the Bible. I mean, moderns tend to think the Bible as this perfect book right? And, and they'll actually use texts like out of 1 Corinthians 13, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect will disappear. I've heard whole organizations use this text to say the perfect that was coming was the Bible. Now that, no one ever even thought of that till after the Reformation. For the, for the Bible, for, or for the, the scriptures for the first 1500 years of the church. They never saw the Bible as perfect. They saw it as a place to hear the reflections of those who had had encounters with God. They knew that they could find useful teaching for correcting and training and equipping, but it was not thought of as a book of perfection, as though it fell like a meteor out of the sky and has all the things you will ever need. You don't need anything else. It's your complete book of all ethics, all science, all everything that you need. No one ever thought of it like that, nor did they ever think of it as a book that we we could use to beat up people who don't know the truth like we do. The Bible was never weaponized. Man, I love the Bible. Don't misunderstand me. It is a, it's a book full of narrative history, genealogies, laws, poetry, proverbs, prophetic oracles, riddles, drama, biographical 
sketches, um, parables, letters, sermons, apocalypses. It's just full of all kinds of genres of, of stuff. I want to say that it's magical. Some people don't like that. It is definitely mystical. And on some level, it fills the believing heart with life and wonder and grace and comfort, this, this book. Most believers treasure the Bible. It's been the bestseller in the world all since history began. When the Gutenberg Press first started printing, the first thing off of the press was the Bible. It's hard to imagine, but these sacred scriptures, which have brought unspeakable comfort and blessing to countless millions, has also been used to bring pain and horror and death to many. The same book. The Bible used to be justified uh, as an instrument, they used to justify their instruments of, of pain for people that were considered heretics. You know who the heretics were? They were the Christians who disagreed with the Christians who were in charge during the Inquisition. Christian leaders who are not like, unlike any of us. I mean, they were just people like we are. Justified using iron collars with spikes in them. So when they closed them, they impaled the throats of the people who were speaking heresy. As well as they would build stretching machines and they would stretch people until their limbs popped off because they were believing something that wasn't right, all in the name of God, of course. Hitler used the Bible to justify murdering millions of Jews. American conservative preachers used the Bible every Sunday to justify slavery during the 1800s. Throughout history, the Bible has been used to defend violence against racial minorities, women, Jews, abortionists, gays, and now our political opponents. When faced with the possibility of war, one group has used scripture to prove that we have to go to war to stop the evil, and another group, using the same Bible, proved that we should never go to war. Same Bible. The interpretation's worlds apart. So what should we do? That is the question. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> That's a problem, man. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, here, I do some things. Like one of the things I do is I look at texts, not to weaponize them, but to find truth, or, or even to find truth in them. But I really look at them for I, where I can be challenged and transformed. Me. That's Luke 24 again. We're, we're, we're not our hearts burning within us while he explained the scriptures to us. In other words, the scripture is supposed to be used to affect us, not use it to hurt others or manipulate others. In James 1, it says, therefore get rid of the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word implanted where? in you, which can save you. That's what you should love the text for, to let God mess with you. Come on, God, I bring the Bible, dice me up, man. Help me figure out what an idiot I am. That's really the heart of it. You can say it nicer than that. Beyond that, when dealing with topics that there are multiple interpretations, I always ask, what has the church said universally? I mean, historically, it, there's not always places of agreement, but you can often find a range of agreement. But just be nicer about it. Don't weaponize it. I also continually admit to myself that when I read the Bible, I have these unseen biases that cause me to read unintended ideas into the text. Yeah. 
And so when I'm honest about that, it keeps me free to give opinions, but not to hold on so much to my, opinion, my opinions that I refuse to, to grow and to listen to others and to actually change, right? Some argue that the Bible doesn't need interpretation. And there's for a lot of texts, that's true. I mean, there's just texts that say things like, this is Paul, do everything without complaining and arguing. You don't need to interpret that. Just stop complaining and arguing. Right, but there, there are all kinds of texts that are not that simple. And if we're not careful, we'll think that our understanding of what we read is, you know, is, is the understanding that should be universalized for all people. No bueno! You didn't know I was Latino, did you? I am, Puerto Rican. Though there are problems, I have not given up on the Bible. I read it. I love it, and let me confuse you just a bit before I stop here, is you really don't need to read the Bible all that much. And then they left, they bade him with stones. Um, The spirituality I was brought up on told me that the key to spiritual formation was prayer and reading the Bible. How many of you, that was your tradition? Yeah, lots of us. How many of you will never raise your hand no matter if I ask you over and over? <laughs> My brother Mark says, pastoring is like a walk in the park. Jurassic Park. <laughs> I was brought up that if you didn't read the Bible, you couldn't grow spiritually. But the truth is, is that most people who have ever lived have never been able to read anything, much less the Bible. Not only could they not read it, they didn't have it. They didn't have books in their houses. So think about that. I mean, the 15th century in Europe, if we took a snapshot of 15th century Europe, that's not that long ago, only 10% of people could sign their name. And the only ones that were really educated at all were the clergy, uh, uh, people that were uh, like entrepreneurs or business people and people that work for the government. And almost to a person, all of them were men. Just nobody read. So poor women, you can't, I mean, you can't, you'll never be spiritual women. It's over for you. <laughs> Jesus, when he used to preach, he would use creation to remind people of the presence of God. He didn't tell them to go read their Bibles. They didn't have any. He told them, look at the sun, look at the rain, look at the sparrow, consider the lily, stuff that was in their world. And he wrapped, of course, they were based and rooted in scripture and all of that, but they didn't have the scriptures to read. That being said, even those, the the reality is that you, if you can read and you have a Bible, read it for crying out loud. So there, I I redeem myself. Last thing. I want to point out from the gospel text is this idea of that participating in special grace helps us see Jesus better. And here's what it is. Look at it, Luke 24. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. Now you all know what this is imagery of. The table. And it said in verse 35, or verse 31, then, when their, then their eyes were opened, the minute he did that, and they recognized him. 
and he disappeared from their sight. And then verse 35, it says, then the two went back to tell on their way, they went back to where Jerusalem was, back to Jerusalem to talk to all the disciples. And they told them how Jesus was recognized by them when? When he broke the bread. See, the church has always believed that there were some special kinds of spaces where grace, a special grace comes to us in corporate moments like the Lord's Supper. These help us catch the risen Christ when, in, in ways that personal spiritual moments don't necessarily help us. Um, Jesus speaks of these special grace moments, Matthew 18, for where there are what? Two or Three come together, my name, there I'm I with them. He is with you when you sleep. He's with you when you have your coffee. But he is with us in corporate spaces in a way that, uh, not available to us when we are by ourselves. These are the spaces of special grace. Some Christian traditions call these sacraments. The Eucharistic meal is one. It's an us moment. Water baptism is one. It's corporate. You can't water baptize yourself. Laying on of hands for prayer is one. You can't just lay hands on yourself. You're supposed to go to someone else. There's something about us that brings Christ's hiddenness present when we're in a way that's different than when we're just by ourselves. All I'm simply saying is we need to, particularly as Protestants, reintegrate these places of special grace into our spirituality because often ours is too private, which means it's too lonely. So here's what I'm saying. Jesus is ridden, risen. He's often undercover. The scriptures play a key role in our working out the implications of resurrections. And we should run to spaces of special grace, the us spaces, if you want to see his risenness in your life. If you just don't have the energy for this, it's okay. He still loves you. He's still with you. And he'll stick with you until you're up for some seek. Bottom line is he is with you. The tomb is empty, and he is alive. Amen.